Welcome. I'm Sandra Peart, Dean of the Jepson School of Leadership Studies, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you to our third event in the Jepson Leadership Forum Speaker Series. Whether you're joining us in person or via live stream, welcome. The United States Army withdrew its remaining troops from Afghanistan in August 2021. Whether you agreed or disagreed with that decision and its repercussions, most people concur that the process was chaotic at best and contributed to a humanitarian crisis that continues to this day. Thus, the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan is a fitting topic for the 2022-23 Jepson Leadership Forum, which focuses on failures in leadership and in followership. This year, we're shining a spotlight on times when we could and should do better. Tonight, we welcome Con Congressman Seth Moulton, a veteran, father, and Democratic leader in Washington, to share his thoughts with us. Born and raised in Northeastern Massachusetts, the Congressman graduated from Harvard in 2001 with a degree in physics. He joined the Marine Marines days after graduation and only a few months before 9-11. He served four tours in Iraq, two as a platoon commander and two as a special assistant to General David Petraeus. Seth led a frontline infantry platoon in the 1st Marine Company to enter Baghdad and later worked to establish a free and independent Iraqi media. He acted as a liaison to senior Iraqi military and political leaders he was an outspoken critic of, of the Iraq war, but he nonetheless served his country with honor and left the Marines in 2008 with the rank of captain. He was twice decorated for valor in Iraq, a fact he kept hidden from even his parents until it was later reported by the, uh, the Boston Globe. After returning home from Iraq, Seth used the GI Bill Restoration Act to earn joint degrees in business and public administration, also from Harvard. He then served as managing director of Texas Central, the company that is building the first high-speed rail line in Texas. He launched his political career in July 2013 when he declared his candidacy for U.S. Representative of Massachusetts' sixth congressional district. He won the election in 2014 and started serving in the U.S. House of Representatives in 2015. Named the most effective freshman Democrat in his first term, he's the only member of Congress to earn three democracy awards from the Congressional Management Foundation. His legislation has delivered faster care for veterans, designated a three-digit national suicide hotline, modernized government travel, and delivered ALS disability insurance. He wrote the GI Bill Repair Act to restore long-denied benefits to black veterans of World War II. Today, Seth sits on three committees. As a member of the Budget Committee, he advocates for, new, for a new economic agenda that will help American families. He co-chaired the Future of Defense Task Force as a member of the House Armed Services Committee, and he's the congressional leader on high-speed rail and other next-generation infrastructure on the Transportation and Infrastructure Committee. He tirelessly advocates for small businesses, veterans, civil rights, and economic growth. 
Congressman, thank you for carving out some time in your very busy schedule to join us this evening. Please join me in welcoming Seth Moulton. Thank you very much. It's an honor to be here. Thank you for that, uh, that generous introduction. Um, you know, I'm here to talk about national security. And I was at a company in my district not too long ago to talk about national security as well, because this is a company that makes uh, things for our, for our national defense. In fact, it turned out that they made some of the very sophisticated sites that we used in, in the Marines. I had no idea that they were made so close to my home where Chris, or Dr. Von Ruden, as you probably call him, uh, and I grew up. And, uh, and at the end of this sort of tour and getting to see their, their facilities and whatnot, uh, a group of people who were on the factory floor came up to hear a little talk. And I talked about how um, they were so important to our national security, how they were a great example of advanced manufacturing right here at home in America. And then I opened it up to questions. And I said, look, you can ask any question you'd like. There was just silence in the room. And I said, look, I'm, a, you know, I'm in Congress. Like, it's my job to take tough questions. I'm really happy to take anything on your mind. Total silence. And then finally, a woman in the very back raised her hand. And she said, who are you? <laughs> so I'm glad to have an introduction. So at least you know who the hell I am. Before I get... Uh, into the topic at hand. I want to tell you just a little bit about who I am and why I signed up for one of the most unpopular jobs in America. I mean, I, I literally have a lower job approval rating as a U.S. congressman than probably anyone else in the room. For me, the reason I got into politics goes back to my time in the Marines. So why did I join the Marines? I joined the Marines because of the most important mentor I've ever had in my life, who was actually a, a college professor. When I was at a school like this, I had a mentor who talked a lot about the importance of service, the importance of finding a way to give back, finding a way to be part of something bigger than yourself. And he said, you all should find a way to serve sometime after you graduate. So as I was approaching graduation, I looked at different options and opportunities. I looked at the Peace Corps. I looked at serving overseas. But at the end of the day, I had so much respect for the 18, sometimes 17-year-old kids who serve on the front lines of our nation's military. Kids about the same age as freshmen here at the University of Richmond that I decided that that's where I wanted to do my part. Now, I made that decision, as, as indicated, just before 9-11, had no idea that I'd end up doing four tours in Iraq or being the first company of Marines uh, into Baghdad. Some of the best days of my life were in the Iraq war. Some of the worst days of my life were in that war as well. I served with some of the most amazing Americans I've ever met. I saw what it means when Washington lets you down, when you feel outright betrayed by some of your leaders back home. I came to appreciate what we have here in America because the meaning of a free press, law and order, and individual rights and freedoms means a lot more when you come to know people who live every day 
without them. And I also realized that I loved serving, that having a job of greater purpose beyond my own self-interest was something that I actually enjoyed. Because even in the midst of a war I disagreed with, every single day my work in Iraq impacted the lives of other people. Serving in the Marines in Iraq was the most important experience of my life, but it also gave me a firsthand seat to seeing some of the consequences of failed leadership in Washington. In fact, there was a tough day in 2004 where at the end of the day, a corporal in my platoon came up to me and said, you know, sir, you ought to run for Congress someday so that this stuff doesn't happen again. Now, he used a Marine term for stuff, but you understand what I, what I mean. <laughs> Playing politics with war and foreign policy takes on a whole new meaning when you know some of the people who die as a result. And that is exactly why, exactly what that corporal said, that it is so important we take a hard look at Afghanistan, that we don't just consign it to the history books, that we ensure we learn from our failures and don't make them again. And we should learn from our successes there as well. I promise you I will continue to take an active role doing my job as a member of Congress and will not forget the thousands of allies that we have left behind. So let's talk for a second about what went wrong. Let me take you back to last summer in Kabul, where I saw up close what the world saw from afar. Americans and allied forces within feet of the Taliban, our enemy of two decades with their horsewhips, literally whipping people no further than I am to you on that side of the room. The Marines out at Abbey Gate had an almost impossible mission to weed through this literal sea of humanity and try to pluck out our allies. Sometimes identified because someone on a text message to a chain of veterans back home had said he's holding up a sign with the letter 37 or the number 37 on it or he's got a brown scarf on and his wife is in a purple dress. The Marines would wade out at tremendous risk to themselves, a risk that we all knew, and grab these Afghans and pull them, literally, to freedom, putting their kids on their backs, carrying them in their arms to fulfill a promise that every one of us on the ground made to these Afghans when they asked, when we asked them to risk their lives for us. It's one of the most incredible things I've seen in my entire life. I don't think I've ever been more inspired to be an American than I was that day at Abbey Gate. When the terrorist bomb everyone expected finally arrived, 13 young Americans gave their lives for the Afghan friends and allies that they saved. And yet, in an even more remarkable act of courage, just hours after they had cleaned up the aftermath from that bomb, another platoon of Marines went out to continue the mission. That's the commitment that our troops and our veterans had to our allies overseas. 
Of course, this scene wasn't just one horrible moment in time, but a culmination of 20 years of decisions, calculations, miscalculations. What led us to the chaos at Abbey Gate, to the images of desperate Afghans hanging from aircraft as it took off from Kabul International Airport. Those are the questions that we all should be asking today. So let's talk about some of the failures. Now, I'm a Democrat. I consider myself a friend and a supporter of President Biden, but the withdrawal under his watch as commander-in-chief was a disaster. I think we all have to agree on that. 80 days before the withdrawal deadline last summer, I asked Secretary of Defense Austin bluntly, why have you not started the evacuations yet? I asked him that in May in a public hearing. Now, months before, we had been asking this question privately of the administration and never getting a satisfactory answer. Of course, they had not started an an evacuation that they knew had to come even long after they had decided to withdraw. So we all know what happened next, a summer full of incomprehensible errors and planning failures. We lost 13 service members to a brutal, brutal but largely foreseeable terrorist attack in addition to over 100 Afghan civilians. Now, many will argue that exiting Afghanistan was almost certainly going to be a failure to some degree because of the circumstances in which we found ourselves, but it didn't have to be as bad as it got. By simply starting the Afghan, the, the Afghan evacuation earlier, we could have saved a lot more lives. But of course, this isn't just on President Biden. There are a lot of questions like mine to Secretary Austin that we have to ask of other presidents and other administrations. For example, for George W. Bush, following the initial success of our military and intelligence operation against the Taliban, should we have escalated the war? Should we have pursued Osama bin Laden more aggressively? Should we have removed resources from that fight to invade Iraq? For Barack Obama, was conducting a surge in Afghanistan following the successful model in Iraq the right decision? Did announcing a withdrawal timeline in conjunction with your surge make any sense at all? And has that ever worked, frankly, in the history of the world? For Donald Trump, did it make sense to negotiate with the Taliban? And if it did make sense to negotiate with the Taliban, did it make sense to dramatically weaken your position ahead of time and then effectively sell the farm to a terrorist organization? I'm not sure if this terrorist handout will constitute a new chapter in a future edition of The Art of the Deal, but we'll see. So what are the key takeaways of the last 20 years? That four presidents failed Afghanistan over the course of 20 years, that's something we need to think long and hard about. Each successive administration blamed the one before it for its misfortunes. There were lots of strategic reviews, new strategies, new generals coming in and saying, I'll do this small thing differently, and this time it will work. And yet there was no real mid-course grappling with why it hadn't succeeded yet and what fundamental assumptions were wrong. Of course, part of the blame, I would argue a significant part, lies with Congress, a Congress that failed at oversight for two decades. 
accepted the story that generals were turning the tide every year for 20 years and never even voted on whether continuing the war made sense, even though it is our constitutional responsibility to do so. So where does this leave us today? I think when you step back from all of this, when you look at Afghanistan from a different distance, I believe there are two fundamental questions, not just national security questions, but fundamentally moral questions about this war that we have to ask. The first is, has it made us safer? How has this war truly impacted our national security? And the second question is, has it left the Afghans better off? On the first question, the devastation that galvanized much of the world on September 11th, 2001, has not been repeated despite several attempts. And that's due to hard work and sacrifice. It's due to a lot of factors, an awful lot of work here at home. But I'll tell you, the patriotic Americans who went to Afghanistan signed up for that duty. They put their lives on the line for that mission for all of us. Still, there are far more terrorists, or at least known terrorists, in the world today than there were 20 years ago. At best, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan have been a limited success on that count. America may be safer today than it was on September 10th, 2001, but the irony is that the war itself may have made things more dangerous for decades to come. That's a legacy that's hard to celebrate, even for a proud veteran like myself. But it's also too early to tell for sure. On the second question, did it leave the Afghans better off? I think the answer to that question largely depends on what happens next. History shows us that it's usually not the wars that make countries succeed or fail, but what happens after the troops are done fighting. It was not World War II, but the Marshall Plan that made Europe the prosperous economic power it is today. It was not World War II, but the international system we created just after that established the relative peace, the Pax Americana, for 70 years. It was not World War I, but perhaps the Treaty of Versailles that inspired Germany to start World War II. There are currently more than 24.4 million people in Afghanistan who require humanitarian assistance to survive, according to the United Nations. Half the population faces acute hunger. Nine million Afghans are in a state of emergency food insecurity, the highest number in the entire world. The lives of women and girls in Afghanistan are being devastated by the Taliban's crackdown on their human rights. There have been untold numbers of killings of former government officials and members of the security forces, translators and workers, allies, and just people who did our laundry at the camps there, and dozens of cases of torture, arbitrary arrests, and disappearances. In the face of this grim reality, the least we can do is keep our commitment to our Afghan allies that helped us over 20 years. Today, 160,000 interpreters, fixers, drivers, support staff, and other Afghan partners remain in the country, remain there, and are at great risk due to a special immigrant visa system that is still far too slow to get them out. With the World Cup going on, evacuation flights out of the Seoul refugee camp in 
Qatar, are still at a standstill. And at the current rate, it would take the U.S. government nine years to evacuate those in danger. That's giving the Taliban a hell of a lot of time to hunt them down. To make matters worse, tens of thousands of Afghans who made it safely to the United States now risk deportation next year if Congress doesn't pass the Bipartisan Afghan Adjustment Act, legislation that would create a path to citizenship. Just a couple of years ago, I came across an old email exchange. It was sent to me a couple of days ago, I should say, with a friend back in 2009. I had just gotten back from a trip to Kabul in southern Afghanistan on a summer internship in grad school. I hope the students here have such interesting summer internships. In that email over a decade ago, I said that we needed to either commit fully to win or take a minimalist approach, but the middle road wasn't an option. It's interesting to read that now. I'll leave you with this. Today, we have a lot of assumptions about the war in Afghanistan. Most of them are negative. It was the right decision to go there, but the wrong to escalate. Or it was the right decision to withdraw, but we went about it in the wrong way. But I think part of examining failures in leadership is about challenging those basic assumptions as well. So I challenge you all tonight to consider whether we should have withdrawn last year, whether it was all worth it. I challenge you to consider whether the president's assertion that this is not worth one more American life is true. Is allowing three million Afghan girls to go to school and grow up with freedoms unimaginable to them today not worth one American life? These are tough questions, but they're exactly the ones that my corporal and that platoon many years ago would want us to ask. The war in Afghanistan was a project that defined us in more ways than we'd like to admit, and will continue to reverberate for decades to come. So for all of you here tonight, what can you do? Some of the young people here might be inspired to serve our country in the hardest, hardest way imaginable, like the brave young Americans I served with in the Marines. But you won't get to do that in Afghanistan. But you can contribute to this debate. You can ask these tough questions. You can help make the legacy of the 2,456 Americans who gave their lives in this fight. You can help make their legacies matter more, matter even more to future generations of Americans by learning the lessons of the policy for which they gave their lives. I'm now delighted to take your questions. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you, Seth. Um, So let me first introduce myself. Uh, I'm Chris Von Ruden. I'm an associate professor of anthropology, or of leadership studies. I'm an anthropologist. Um, And um, uh, I'm here facilitating Q&A in large part because Seth and I go a ways back. Um, We both grew up in Marblehead, Massachusetts. Um, We played trumpet together in the middle school band. That's true. Not a a successful pursuit for me. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) me neither. Um, Our musical sort of uh, adventures continued, though. We were 
uh, in college, we were both classmates and sang together in university choir. Um, and um, it was there in the, the church at, uh, at college that, you know, you found inspiration with Peter Gomes and laid that path that's taken to you, you know, to where you are today, and which I remain, you know, awed by. Um, and so, yeah, I'm really proud to call Seth a friend. And um, so happy to be here today and facilitate some Q&A. Um, Thanks, Chris. And, and what we'll try to do is I, I know that there have been pre-submitted questions and um, and whatnot. I, I don't know exactly how many there are, but we'll, if we can, try to get through all of those so that we can take your questions from the from the audience as well. So I'll try to be concise, although this is a difficult tar- topic to be concise about sometimes. So. Yeah, so there are some questions pre-submitted. I'll, I'll run through a few and then open it up. I saw there were a number of hands that shot right up, so I want to take those, those questions too, as you said. Okay. So let's start with this, this first question. Um, in hindsight, should President George W. Bush have taken the December 2001 deal with the Taliban and withdrawn then? If not, what was gained through 20 years of war? I mean, look, this is one of these very difficult questions to, um, to answer, I think, because it's easy to look back at, at all the disasters in Afghanistan and say, gosh, we could have gotten out uh, right after we went in, and wouldn't that be convenient? I think most people would probably say, in, in hindsight, it might look good to take a deal like that. I, I can't imagine being in the president's shoes back in 2001 and ever accepting a deal with the Taliban right after, right after 9-11. Uh, we had no idea. I certainly had no idea as a young Marine that we would be in Afghanistan more than a few months. In fact, I went through training for the Marine Corps right, right up in Quantico throughout all of 2002. I thought I had just missed the war. I figured this was going to be like Persian Gulf. I had no idea that we'd be going into Iraq. And I certainly, I mean, if you had told me that we'd be still fighting these wars 20 years from now, I would have said you were absolutely nuts. So I think it's very hard to look back and say that that, that, that would have been a reasonable answer at the time. Oh, and then what have we, I mean, look, what have we accomplished? It's very, it's, I think it's very hard to see as Americans what, it, what a difference it makes to Afghan girls who were able to go to school for 10 or 20 years. I think it's very hard to appreciate you know, I have a, a picture that I took of, um, of two Afghan girls uh, standing next to a, a mud brick wall in a rural part of Helmand province, um, hanging on the stairs up to my daughter's bedrooms because I want them to, they're too young to understand where Afghanistan is now, but when they get a little older, I want them to be able to look at that and understand, you know, what it meant to be an Afghan girl and never have any of the opportunities that we all just take for granted here in America. So that, that leads to actually another question on the list, which is why was safeguarding women's rights not enough of an issue to keep us there? Well, I mean, look, I, I, I would argue that maybe it should have been. And, and that's why I asked, I think, that really tough question um, uh, that, that really should be directed to President Biden about whether it was not worth one American life to continue what we were doing in Afghanistan. And essentially what he was saying is that, you know, hundreds, maybe even thousands of Afghan lives were not worth one of ours. And I think most Americans heard that and said, yeah, I don't want to waste another life over there. But I think we really got to question that. Again, not just from a national security perspective, but from a moral perspective, as we now look back at that decision. All right. Um, Something you actually alluded to briefly in your 
your um, remarks. Um, how did the war in Iraq imp- impact U.S. military operations, economic investment, institution building, and generally just fostering of civic society in, in Afghanistan? Well, I, I, I think this is actually one of the few questions on, on which there's not a lot of debate. I mean, I think everyone pretty much agreed that we diverted a tremendous amount of our resources to Iraq away from Afghanistan. And we can have a whole separate debate about the Iraq War. Um, I think the Iraq War is another one of those uh, misadventures, in a way, um, that's too early really to tell whether it will be viewed as positive. I mean, look, if, if 10 or 20 years from now, there's a, uh, the only democracy in that part of the world is Iraq, and it's actually helping to establish other democratic governments, we might actually look back and say Iraq was not such a bad idea. On the other hand, there are a lot of ways that it could get a lot worse than it is now. Um, I got a text recently from a friend who's doing business in Baghdad, and he was, you know, he um, texted me a picture of where he was sitting in an internet cafe in Baghdad. That was unimaginable just five or ten years ago, uh, just five years ago, frankly. Um, so I think it's, uh, it's too early to say. But there's no question that it diverted a lot of resources from Afghanistan. And I think most military experts agree that we could have um, gotten Osama bin Laden and done some other things if we hadn't made that decision to send a lot of troops to Iraq. Why did the U.S. follow the Taliban deadline for withdrawal? Um, Why did we adhere to a total withdrawal rather than a a partial withdrawal? I mean, this is one of these questions that I think is, again, it's tough to answer. It's hopefully a question that we will examine in in, in Congress. But I think that if you really want to get into the details here, um, what happened towards the end of August, um, uh, a summer and a half ago, a year and a half ago, was that, um, you know, we kind of came out and said we have this, um, this deadline that was actually in advance of what the, we had agreed to with the, the Taliban. And we just insisted on sticking to it, even when it looked like uh, we needed more time. One of the fundamental questions that myself and Congressman Peter Meyer and I were trying to answer uh, for us and for our colleagues when we went to Kabul in, in August of 2000, uh, 2021 was whether it made sense to follow that deadline. And I'll tell you, our assumption going in was that we had to stay longer. It was the assumption of the vast majority of certainly veterans in Congress, but probably most members of Congress as well. There was a letter all typed up, ready to go, signed by dozens of lawmakers to to send to President Biden saying, you have to extend the deadline. And that letter was never sent because Peter and I came back and said, um, from what we saw on the ground, from understanding intimate details of the present state of negotiations with the Taliban, not just what got us here, but where we are today, we think it's going to cost a lot more lives to stay. And in fact, because there's no way, even by extending the deadline a few weeks, to get everyone out, we have to maintain some sort of productive relationship with the Taliban going forward if we have a chance of getting the tens of thousands we left behind to come out eventually. But that was something that we learned by doing the oversight uh, uh, on the ground, by understanding uh, how those negotiations were happening. So where or should there have been planned and practiced scenarios for the withdrawal? Yes, I mean, of course. I mean, we've known this was coming. I mean, in a sense, we knew it was coming since we invaded. So for 20 years, we knew that we were going to have to withdraw at some point. But we certainly knew it was coming uh, after President Trump made the deal with the Taliban to withdraw. And President Biden, uh, coming into office, made it very clear that he was going to 
uphold that deal that he uh, his policy for a long time has been that we should pull out of Afghanistan. So there's no question that we knew this was coming. And it turned out that the Trump administration, despite agreeing to this plan, had made no preparations whatsoever for the withdrawal. They had not played out any of these scenarios. But then the Biden administration came in, and for months they didn't play them out either. So I think both administrations are, are to blame on, on that account. I'm going to get one more question in here, and then I'll open it up. Um, so um, some members of Congress were sounding the alarm about special immigrant visa applications from Afghanis as early as May 2021. Why were they ignored? Uh, well, I mean, I was the one who was most public about that. Um, but as I said, I've been doing it behind the scenes long before for May. And um, I don't know that I've been ever able to answer that question. I don't know. Uh, when I asked, I asked that question of Secretary Austin, he answered it first or tried to answer it first, but also Chairman Milley. And it was very apparent to me, I and mean, you can go and, you know, pull the video off, off C-SPAN if you missed it at the time. I'm, I imagine most of you didn't miss it at the time. You're glued to C-SPAN all day, but um, <laughs> you can pull the, the clip. And it was very obvious to me that Secretary Austin and Chairman Milley, a very recent veteran and a active duty American soldier, clearly thought that we should be evacuating people. I could be wrong, but it seemed to me that they clearly agreed with my question and thought we should be evacuating people, but obviously someone was telling them no. Telling them no. All right, let's get the question. And I'm gonna go get a, a sip of water while you ask the first question. Okay. We have one microphone, so if you are interested in asking a question, maybe ask you to come over here Thank you for uh, coming out tonight. I'm wondering, um, House Republicans look poised to investigate the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Do you support their efforts, and what do you think will come from that? Well, I mean, I think it's probably pretty obvious from my speech that I absolutely support the idea that we should investigate Afghanistan. I mean, that's kind of the fundamental premise of, of, of my talk tonight. Um, of course, I want it to be done in, an, in a meaningful way, which means not a partisan hack job, but uh, a way that seriously looks at the failures over the course of four administrations. If we just have a, an investigation of the withdrawal, you know, sure, that's useful in terms of planning for that particular type of military operation should we ever find ourselves in similar circumstances again. But if we want to really save American lives, if we want to prevent these mistakes from happening in the future, then we have to look at this from soup to nuts over the course of 20 years, how the decision was made to go into Afghanistan, how the decision was made to escalate the war, and everything since then. Thank you. Hello. Good evening. Thank, thank you for coming. Thanks um, for having me. My question is, you, you opened with the statement, a comment on your job approval rating, um, <laughs> and you also just mentioned a moment ago about C-SPAN. Um, Am I right? There are 535 members of Congress That's total. Right. Okay. I, th I can count on one hand, possibly two, how many members of Congress I hear from in the news on a regular basis. And I think it is due to those people that you have a low job approval rating. <laughs> what can we Let's do? Let's not name names, but I will, <laughs> I will agree with you. <laughs> um, 
I'm a small businessman, and I know that for me to have people value me, I have to tell them why they have to value me. What can we do to get Congress to be heard from, for you folks to be heard from? You know, what can we do to make that happen? What can you do to make that happen? Because I feel like I don't hear from 500, at, at, you know, 500 members. It's an interesting question. I mean, I, I, I don't know that I have a brilliant answer. Changing the algorithms on Facebook and Twitter would probably help a lot. That's not a joke. That's very serious. Um, the reality in today's world is that everybody's been able to find an echo chamber for their beliefs. And I think that makes it very hard for people who try to be reasonable and balanced and, and, and fundamentally try to be truth tellers, you know, willing to criticize the other guy, but willing to criticize yourself and your own party as well. I think it makes it hard for us to get heard. You know, being a uh, so-called moderate, I'm not even supposed to use that word, is, okay. is not a popular type of politician these days. I'd get way more Twitter followers and, you know, you might, if there's a video of tonight, it might kind of, you know, pop up on YouTube or whatever if I said something crazy and off the wall. That's not a good way to govern. But it's the incentives of the system that we've created uh, around the media, around the, around the culture, around the money in politics and all sorts of other things um, that, have, that have created the system today. So I don't think there's one silver bullet. I think you have to address social media. I think you have to address money in politics. I think it would help to address gerrymandering. I think it would help to have nonpartisan primaries and nonpartisan redistricting if you can do it right. These are a lot of different things that would help. I think it would be helpful if we were elected every four years and every two, instead of every two, and it would probably be helpful if you had term limits as well. But a lot of these changes would actually take real big changes in our government, like constitutional amendments, right? Um, so it's going to be hard to get there. Thanks for your question. Thanks for being here tonight. Yes. Um, I teach a course for undergraduates and graduates at another institution on leadership concepts. I use H.R. McMaster's book, uh -huh. Dereliction of Duty, as illustrating some of those failures of leadership. In the fall of 2021, I had to change my course to take into account so what didn't we get from Vietnam that we repeated as failures in Afghanistan? And I came up with half a dozen, but what I'd be interested in is your thoughts on those points. Well, this is an unfair question. I mean, you've studied this, and now you're asking whether I can pass an exam after having not even taken your course. But um, look, I, I, I do think that there are uh, un undoubtedly a lot of parallels. Um, but, you know, one of the most fundamental is that I believe in a, in a, in a democratic society, uh, especially with the Constitution that we have. We need to spread the burden of war. We can't just put it on the, soul, on the, the shoulders of, you know, half of 1% that, that serves. And for all the problems with Vietnam, if you got drafted, you knew you had to do your 13 months, and then the guy across the street would do his turn. I was very proud to go back to Iraq four times because I never wanted anyone to go in my place. But I'm not sure that that's the right way to fight wars as a country, to understand the burden of those wars, to start a war for the first time in our history by saying, we're going to cut taxes, and all of you should just go shopping. 
rather than actually pass a tax to pay for the war, to pay for the cost of the war, to pay for the care for us veterans when we come home. You know who's going to pay for my veteran care? My two daughters. Their generation is going to pay that bill. Not yours, not mine. So we can talk about a lot of things, but I think that's one of the most important uh, comparisons between the two wars. Congressman, thank you for coming tonight. I guess my question would be, I feel like quite a bit of blame was placed on the U.S. government and the Biden administration for the collapse of the withdrawal from Afghanistan. But personally, I feel like we're not paying attention to the native Afghan government because we spent billions and billions of dollars propping up a government, training their army, and doing many things to improve the infrastructure, and again, the governmental structure of Afghanistan. And while we can blame the U.S., I feel like there was no morale, there was no motivation of the Afghan government to prop up their state, because when the Taliban came around, you know, they surrendered very, very quickly, which is part of the reason why the, um, you know, withdrawal collapsed in the uh, first place. And I'm wondering, like, how much of the blame can be placed on the uh, Ghani administration? It's a good question. I mean, look, I don't think there's, I don't think there's anyone nominating President Ghani for a Profiles and Courage Award this year. <laughs> All right? But one of the things you learn in the, in the military, I think particularly in the Marine Corps, is, is you, you're responsible, you take responsibility for your actions. There's no question that the situation in Afghanistan, as it got you know, over the course of the last 20 years, was largely of our making. I mean, we were the ones who overthrew the last government in Afghanistan and established a new one. So I don't think you can just explain, you know, blame those guys for it not happening. It'd be like for me coming back from a mission as a platoon commander and saying, yeah, we've, we failed the mission, sir, but it ain't my fault. You know, a bunch of Lance Corporals in my platoon screwed it up. That, that's, not, that's not leadership. That's not responsibility. So, sure, there's plenty of blame to assign to the Afghans. Um, I don't think doing so really advances the discussion or the debate at all. What we should be asking is how did we manage to establish a government that was so fundamentally flawed uh, they couldn't hold on, even for a few weeks. Thank you. Uh, thank you for your service and for coming. Thank you. Uh, the previous question actually is a pretty good uh, lead-in for mine, so I'll, I'll thank you as well. Uh, one of the things that I felt contributed to the corruption was we were dumping so much money in aid into Afghanistan, far more than the system could, absor could absorb, that money's going to go somewhere. So it went to corruption. And my question to you is not about the past, it's about moving forward, because USAID has restarted its aid programs. I'm seeing advertisements for country directors for the NGOs that are being funded by USAID. And the Special uh, Investigator General for Afghanistan Reconstruction is complaining about not getting any cooperation from elements of the U.S. government to do oversight of that aid. Right. So what can, is there an overarching strategy, should there be, and what can we do to make sure that the money we're spending going forward actually helps? So you're right. This is a great sequel to the previous, uh, to the previous question, uh, and, it, and it's a great question. I, I think that you have identified one of the single greatest challenges in American foreign policy today. 
Uh, I mean, this is a great question for you know students at an institution like this uh, to debate in, in in foreign policy classes because we have this massive problem where millions of Afghans could literally starve to death. We have the resources to help them, but the only way to get them that aid is through the Taliban, a terrorist organization that facilitated the worst terrorist attack on the United States and kind of just won the war against us after 20 years. The same Taliban that's hunting down our allies while we're still trying to, to get them out. I don't think there's an easy solution to this. I do think it's the right decision to try to get some aid to the Afghans. I mean, and whether it comes from us or the UN or our European allies or wherever else, I don't want to see innocent Afghans die of starvation. But there's no question that some of that money is going to go to corruption. And the Taliban is going to take advantage of it wherever they can. I don't trust the Taliban uh, one tiny bit. So uh, figuring out how to navigate that, figuring out how to send the right amount of aid to save some Afghan lives with not, without fundamentally empowering the Taliban is an incredibly challenging job for the State Department right now. Thanks for being here. I really appreciate this because I think it's just important to uh, look at your failures there are, your successes. Uh, on a micro question, I just never have heard a good answer about Bagram, but more importantly, I got kids, and they're about to turn the age where they can go into military. We promised the Afghan people that we would, if you supported us, we would get you out. We would get you the visas. We would get you out. And you said 160,000. Didn't think it was that much. I hear lots of podcasts about special agencies and civilians who are doing their best to go out there and do what we didn't do. The bigger thing going forward is we're going to eventually get into another conflict with somebody. We're going to be sending our, our soft forces in to say, if you do this, we will help you out. Trust us. Why would anybody in the world trust the United States to say, we will back you up. We will not leave you. We will always support you. And if you help us out, we will bring you to the United States. When we, what we have to do is look back and say, look what they did in Afghanistan. They left you hanging. Thank you for your time. I don't know. I don't know why they would trust us. And that is the biggest national security risk, the biggest risk to our troops in the future from what we did. Because those Afghans saved a lot of our lives. I can't tell you how many times in Iraq, I, I've obviously been to Afghanistan and my college internship, among other things, but, um, but I served as a Marine in Iraq. I can't tell you how many times Iraqis saved my life because I didn't understand what was going on. I didn't understand what he was saying. I didn't understand how dangerous this corner was that we were about to come to. I put my life in the hands of my translators. And fundamentally, just like you said, they put their lives in our hands. And we broke that promise. I don't frankly think there's anything more to say. Hi, thank you for coming out. Um, so I'm gonna ask a question that we talk about in leadership ethics in our classes. Um, so in 2006, Aaron Watata was other than honorably discharged from the US military because he selectively refused to fight in Iraq. He said, I'm fine with fighting in Afghanistan, but the Iraq war is illegal, it's an unjust war, I don't wanna go, I'm not gonna go. And so he's kicked out. Since that's happened, a lot of philosophers in just war theory have thought 
Actually, there should be more provisions within the U.S. military for selective conscientious refusal on the grounds that the cause of the conflict is unjust. It shouldn't be left to Congress. It shouldn't be left to the executive state. It shouldn't be a political decision. Individual soldiers should be empowered to speak and think for themselves to make judgments about the justice of the cause. So having been on both sides of that question, what do you think about the philosophical case for selective conscientious refusal? Well, this is a place where my physics degree from Harvard def definitely leaves me unqualified to answer the, <laughs> uh, the question. Um, look, I mean, I, I, I think it's a, it's a fascinating philosophical question. I think that, that you have to ask this question at a moral and philosophical le level, but you also have to ask it at a practical level, you know, and it would be pretty easy to envision a slippery slope uh, where not only does someone, you know, conscientiously object to this war that he or she is being sent to, but says, you know, hey, Lieutenant Molden, I've agreed with everything you've said up until now, but I ain't doing that. And that doesn't work too well in war. So I, I think that, there are, some, that there, are some, there are some issues. Now, on the one hand, of course, it, we expect our troops to disobey unlawful orders. And uh, this is something that uh, you know, was much debated, especially under the, the previous administration. Um, among our troops, among our, among our young leaders especially, I heard from a, for a, lot, a lot of them on this. Um, but you can't have uh, you know, a platoon of guys who every single step say, well, I was willing to do this, but not that. You know, so these are practical issues that I think you have to address. And as a reality, you know, there are things that, um, that are not perfect about life in the military. Um, you don't always like the food that you're getting served. You don't always like every mission you're asked to go on. Um, you don't ever like, always like every decision that you have to make. Um, but we have to make some compromise between the moral sort of philosophical ideal and the practical realities of fighting war. So I have not answered your question, but, um, but I think that's got to be part of the debate as well. Thank you. All right. All right. I'm going to return to one of the previous Q&As where you mentioned that you think congressman term limit terms should be four years and there should be term limits. What makes you think, th what makes you think that? Well, I'll just answer this briefly because it's not really the, the topic of tonight. But, um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of people come up to me and they say, you know, Seth, why is Congress so stupid? Like, like, like what, what the hell are you thinking? Like, you know, how can you not believe, I mean, whatever, climate change, like the guy with the snowball and, you know, on the floor of the Senate or whatever. And, you know, my observation is that most of my colleagues are actually pretty smart. It's not like a trivial thing to get elected to, to Congress. I think what's missing from Congress writ large is not intelligence, although there are some exceptions to this rule. <laughs> It's not intelligence, it's courage. It's the political courage to take the tough vote that you know is the right thing to do, or to say the truth on TV that your party doesn't want you to say, or your president doesn't want you to say, when it's unpopular to do so. And it's pretty easy to document, document the remarkable rise in, in political courage among members of Congress in their last term. If you know that you're not going to fight forever to get reelected, you're much more likely to just vote honestly, to vote the truth. So I think that's the kind of fundamental argument for, for term limits. Will you lose some amazing legislators like John McCain, for example, who I think most Americans are probably glad was in the Senate for as long as he was? 
yes, that would be that would be a downside. But my my estimate is that on on balance, it would be a good thing. Now, congressional terms were established at two years, essentially for the historical reason that they wanted to ensure that all of us went back to our districts at least once every two years, because we're you know the the, the representatives of the people, not the legislatively appointed senators because they were not directly elected, of course, at first, but the representatives of the people. And if it took a month to get back to your home state, then you really might not leave Washington for two straight years until it was time to get reelected. Obviously, that's completely anachronistic now. And the reality is that, um, you know, if the election is on November 8th, the first day of my campaign for reelection is November 9th. I'm just constantly running for reelection. And I don't think that's very healthy for our democracy. I don't think that's a good way for me to get to do a good job. Thank you for answering. You're welcome. Thank you for coming. Good evening, Since sir. Since there's a leadership uh, forum here, and yes. I went here to college, and I'm great, I'm going to kind of put you on the spot. Sure. If you were President Biden coming into power, and you knew some of the stuff that you knew, how would you structure the withdrawal of Afghanistan? Well, first of all, um, after basically throwing out every other decision the prior president had made, I would not <laughs> abide by a timeline that the prior president said with, set with the ta Taliban. Uh, I would say, this is a new administration, and just like we're doing all these other things differently, we're going to do this differently as well. I would sit down with my military leaders, and I would get from them a plan to have effective withdrawal, and then base my timeline on that plan, not say, okay, we're pulling out, go figure out what the plan is. I would insist that you explain to me how we're going to fulfill the commitments that we made. And it's not that complicated math. Tell me how many people you can evacuate a month. Tell me how many we need to evacuate. Let's make sure we have enough months to do that. And then I would also ask the military for serious assessments of whether the risk today was greater from keeping a few thousand Americans in Afghanistan or pulling us all out. There are a lot of reasons that people can give for why we shouldn't still be in Afghanistan 20 years after we started. But the reality for the current president is that's the past. The decision you have to make today is it in our national security interests to pay, pull everybody out or is there a greater risk from keeping people there. Now, I know that President Biden did ask that question. I'm not sure his administration listened seriously to the answers. Do you think he did any of the things that you said? Yes, he asked that question, for example. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, first, thank you for coming, and uh, thank you for your service. Um, so it's been mentioned how there were lessons from the Vietnam War that we may have missed here, and it's also been mentioned a few times, the uh, broken promises. So I guess my question is, following the 2019 withdrawal from Syria, uh, we also had a very similar broken promise situation with the Kurdish allies we had there. And so I'm wondering, uh, do you think there were lessons that we missed from that withdrawal? And I guess I'm wondering, how did we miss these things? Because it seems like very similar situations, and the exact same thing played out with the broken promises and the then inevitable mistreatment of the Kurds who helped us win that war. So what could have been done differently, and how did we miss that just two years later? That's an excellent question, because actually I think this is something that's often over, overlooked. You know, some of these questions bring up things that make me think, God, I really should have mentioned that in the speech. You know? um, 
and, uh, and there's obviously not enough time to cover everything. Um, but this is a very good point. Um, we did essentially do the same thing uh, under President Trump a few years before. Why, why did we not learn lessons from that? Well, I think, first of all, it was, it was much more of a shadow war that Americans didn't know what was going on. It was largely an intelligence special forces war. Um, there was not the regular reporting. There was not this huge cadre of veterans um, all across America who had Afghan friends and allies who were still there and maybe even still kept in touch with them. So there just wasn't the publicity around, around all of this. I know because of my position on the Armed Services Committee that those veterans, those active duty troops, the special forces guys in Syria, felt exactly the same way that all of us um, did about our Afghan allies. They didn't really have a platform or a, a, a place to, to voice those concerns publicly, and so they were, never really, uh, they were never really raised up. I think the other political reality is that there was not a strong, uh, even compared to Afghanistan, there was not at all a strong um, political opposition to the decision to withdraw. This is oversimplifying things, um, but a lot of um, Republicans and moderates in Congress believed that it was a mistake, or at least those of us who understood what was going on there um, believed it was a mistake. Um, but Republicans, almost to a man, wouldn't go against Donald Trump. And then on the de Democratic side, uh, a lot of them thought that we shouldn't, uh, a lot of us thought that you know, we shouldn't be in Syria to begin with. Um, and so it was very easy for, for Democrats to just say, well, you know, I don't really like President Trump, but I'm glad that we're getting out of Syria. And so a as a result of that, there was just not either the, the public platform for raising these issues and concerns, nor was there the political constituency uh, to respond. But I do think it was a huge, uh, a huge miss. And you're very smart to bring it up. Thank you for being here. My question is, or in your current role in an oversight capacity, how do you think about accountability at the senior military leadership level? So I was a platoon leader in Afghanistan a decade ago, and I think if you or I had led a mission like the withdrawal, we would have been held accountable pretty rapidly. Um, and like you mentioned earlier, you know, a new general comes in every couple of years over the last 20 years and says, I'm going to change things, and then they seem to get you know, promoted. Um, so thank you for being here. There's a, uh, there's a well-worn phrase um, uh, that I'm sure every veteran here knows, which is that uh, a private who loses a rifle gets in more trouble than a general who loses a war. And that is true. That is 100% true. And that's a real problem with our system of leadership and accountability uh, in the military. You know, this is a, a part of the country with a lot of Civil War history. When generals lost battle in the Civil War, they were done. That never really happened over the last 20 years. It didn't in certain cases. It wasn't completely without exception. But in general, uh, that didn't happen. But it also hasn't happened at the administration level. You know, secretaries of defense uh, were not really held accountable. It always struck me as a young Marine in, in Iraq that when President Bush decided that Rumsfeld had to go, something that a lot of Americans, and I think many of us on the ground, probably agreed with, he didn't do so until the day after the midterms. In other words, it was an entirely political timeline for relieving someone for national security concerns. I remember saying to myself, I think the president deserves a letter, a personal letter, to the mother of every kid in America who died in Iraq between the time that he decided to get rid of Rumsfeld 
and the politically convenient day that he chose. So there is accountability at a lot of levels, but almost exclusively the higher levels uh, that we have to address. I, I don't think fundamentally that that's going to happen until you get leaders in the White House who really understand what that level account of accountability means. And um, it's one of the reasons why uh, you know, I, I think we need to have a very diverse Congress. But I've been working hard over the last several years to get more veterans in Congress, because I think veterans like you and I understand that. Semper Fi, Marine. Semper Fi. Second Battalion, 4th Marines. A few years ahead Excellent. of you, though. First Battalion, 4th Marines. Yeah, no. So. Yeah, well, we were the magnificent <laughs> bastards, so, you know, <laughs> little rivalry going there. But, that uh, is a better logo than my battalion. That's true. <laughs> I can't recall which whatever it was. Takes, whatever yeah, it takes. Whatever it takes. Whatever yeah. it takes, yeah. Um, my, I guess my question presupposes the idea that in any withdrawal from a battle or a war uh, that you are dependent upon having a certain amount of power left behind in order to, you know, you think of you know, the chosen reservoir, you know, right? And you have a certain amount of power left behind to make sure that you don't get overwhelmed at the end. And wasn't there, and I, I don't think we were in a combat role for the last two years that we were in Afghanistan. Is that a correct assessment? It's a little bit about how you define it, but okay. it's not unreasonable. Yeah, so in, in terms of combat capability, we didn't have as much as we did, let's say, five years prior to that in Afghanistan. And we were dependent upon the Afghan army holding up. So my question is, uh, and quite frankly, uh, let me go aside for a second. I agree totally with you that we should have left any number of American soldiers, Marines, whatever it took to make sure that Afghan stayed the way that it was, to prop them up if necessary. Hell, we've still got, you know, troops in Korea, for God's sake, you know, and, you know, we should have just bitten the bullet. Um, I, I don't mean to interrupt, but just, just to be fair, I'm not even affirmatively saying that for sure we should have done that, but I don't think we seriously asked the question. So well, you're interpreting, I mean, that I may be my view, maybe not, but, but No, I understand but I what think, you're saying. Yeah. I'm affirmatively saying we should have stayed. Okay? Roger that, sir. You know, one yeah. Marine to another, <laughs> that's fine. So well, I guess what I'm saying is that we, you know, whatever we did, um, we were dependent upon the Afghans, which was, quite frankly, I think, a hollow armed force. And as soon as they saw that we were withdrawing, we started taking out our interpreters and their families and all of that stuff. That's tantamount to saying, we're gone. You know, as soon as these guys are gone, we're leaving the rest of you guys behind. You know, so I guess my question is, why the hell didn't we just stay at least some troops to act as a tripwire so that the Taliban behave themselves. They're not the most, uh, you know, uh, people that you can trust and the most trustworthy people in the world. Well, let me, let me, let me make a few points. This is a very interesting and important question. It's a good place to end. Um, but, so thank you for asking it. Let, let, me make a, let me make a few important points here. First of all, if you look at the, um, the statistics for Afghan casualties versus American casualties, 
Afghans died in vastly larger numbers for their country than, than we did for their country. So I don't think we should ever underestimate the fighting will of the Afghans or the sacrifices that the members of the Afghan army made for their country. Sure, we can say that they cut and run at the end, but for 20 years, they died at much higher rates than, than we did fighting for their country's freedom. I think that's an important point to make. Second of all, look, I think that when asking this question, you know, what would have been the consequences of staying? One of the arguments is that we wouldn't have been able to keep the number of troops that we had because the Taliban was planning to conduct an offensive. In other words, it wasn't really an option to keep a few thousand troops there. We would have had to escalate. I'm not sure that assumption is correct, but that is an excuse that, that some people will, um, will make. But it also invites these much bigger questions about just what, what we're willing to make sacrifices for. You know, what does it mean to have millions of Afghan girls be able to go to school? What does it mean to have millions of Afghan girls not able to go to school? You know, what does it mean to have the largest humanitarian crisis on earth in the country that we just left after being there for 20 years? You know, these are big moral questions that I think deserve to be asked. When you ask, how did the Taliban, uh, sorry, how did the Taliban take over so quickly? Um, how did they conquer this Afghan army that was trained by us so well for, for, for so many years? I think those are very important questions to ask from a military perspective to understand where we went wrong. And I won't try to give you a complete answer, but I'll give you a couple of real quick points. We, we developed an Afghan army completely in our image. That meant they were dependent on our technology, dependent on our intelligence, dependent on our aircraft, dependent on our sophisticated weapon systems, including drones and everything else. So if you train guys to fight with all that equipment for 20 years, and then you suddenly take it away, I'm very proud of my platoon. And I'm confident that 1-4 could take on 2-4 any day of the week, sir. <laughs> but if I told my Marines, hey, tomorrow we're gonna go on a mission, but we're not gonna have any air support, we're not going to have any intelligence. We're not going to have any sophisticated weapons. And if you get hurt, there's going to be no helicopter to take you to an American hospital. I don't think my Marines would be too thrilled to go on that mission. We might have to go back to your question about whether they would even want to go. That's the reality that we left the Afghans when we made that decision to pull out. This brings a lot of questions up, and I think that these are the kinds of questions, exactly the kind of questions that I hope we continue to ask. I mean, I'm, I'm thrilled that so many of you came out tonight to have this um, debate and discussion. And can I just make a quick closing remarks? <clears throat> what I hope most for Afghanistan today is very simple. It's that we don't forget about it. I think there are a lot of Americans who want to forget about Afghanistan. There are a lot of Democrats who don't want to talk about Biden's withdrawal. I hope you can see I'm an exception to that tonight. There are a lot of Republicans who don't want to talk about Trump's deal with the Taliban and everything that led us to, to today. There are a lot of Republicans who don't want to talk about George W. Bush decisions. There are a lot of Democrats who don't want to talk about Barack Obama's decisions too. There are a lot of veterans 
who have expended so much emotional energy, put their heart and soul, literally their lives, into Afghanistan. And as committed as they are to the cause, many of them also want to move on. There are a lot of Americans who just think it was all a mistake. And they don't want to relive those mistakes. They're proud to be Americans. And they want to forget about it. But we're doing a great disservice, not only to the Afghans that we left behind, but to future generations of Americans who will be called on to fight wars like this, who will be called on to ask our allies, wherever they are in the globe, to stand alongside us and fight at our side, who will be asked by the American people, by all of you, to go stand on the ramparts of freedom around the globe. I hope that everyone in this room will keep this debate alive. We'll keep asking these questions until we get more satisfactory answers. Not just for us, but for our kids. And I hope the students in the room will not only ask these questions here at school, but will think about that question that I got asked when I was in college. How are you going to serve? What are you going to do to give back? The Marine soldiers airmen, seamen out there tonight are your age. They're out there standing guard. Sometimes in wars they agree with, sometimes in wars they don't. But they're all there so that you don't have to go in their place and you can be back here. You don't have to serve in the military, but I hope you will find a way to give back to this country that's given so much to all of us. Thank you and good night.